So today is the beginning of this uh, retreat, and uh, the point of it is to uh, increase faith <clears throat> and uh, determination in practicing the Dhamma. both in the monastic forms and lay forms. The Buddha's teaching are teachings that are <clears throat> practical, they're to be used, not just revered in, as objects of worship, but also to be put into practice. It always fascinated me Buddha's approach after his enlightenment uh, this is according to the scriptures that his first sermon was about the uh, Four Noble Truths. It wasn't about Nibbana or some blissful state of conscious uh, attainment, but pointing to the most banal, most ordinary human experience of suffering of dukkha and ask myself, why did he choose to do that? You know, most religions talk about inspiring the subjects like universal love and, and uh, compassion and words and symbols and things that, that inspire the mind, uplift the mind, but suffering doesn't do that. And why, why did he call it a noble truth? What is it about suffering or dukkha that's noble and truthful? <clears throat> and I think this is the reason that many of us have uh, become interested in teaching of the Buddha and in the uh, practice of meditation, because in our lives we do experience suffering, dukkha. Uh, even from very privileged backgrounds, not to mention underprivileged backgrounds, uh, suffering seems to be a common bond we all share with all sentient beings. And the attitude of, of suffering is usually, the, the react, we react to it. We don't want it, we don't like it. <clears throat> we want to find permanent happiness and security, stability, universal love and, and acceptance uh, on, the, on the grand scale. But what is this life about? What is the actual reality of our existence as human individuals living on planet Earth in this vast universe? What, what is it all about anyway? Because when you examine it, when you start paying attention to it, it's, it's uh, the experience of change. It's not the experience of stability. It's not about universal love and bliss forevermore. But it is the way it is. And so, the first noble truth is out of the Buddha's compassion stating something that is easy to observe in one's own mind and body. 
you know so it's not it's not esoteric or remote or or high up or even, or subtle <clears throat> it's ordinary and Numpa Cha is always talking about the ordinary Dhamma rather than states of high conscious attainment and and uh, heavenly attainments in the in the uh, heavenly realms I never heard him talk very much about that level but it was about the first noble truth and so the statement is not it's not a metaphysical truth it's a noble truth it's not ultimate truth it's a, a noble truth so what do we mean by noble we talk about what's so noble about suffering and it is a truth it is something that we we can relate to in ordinary life and noble is a, in an English sense is is an ability that we have as individuals to to look at suffering in a different way rather than trying to escape it or blame it on external causes on somebody else on the weather on lack of privilege and opportunities in one's life we can find all kinds of external objects to blame for our suffering but that's not the first noble truth And so the Buddha said to understand suffering. Translated to understand. To understand something, you have to accept it. If you just react to suffering, then you can't really understand it. You're merely trying to seek a way out of it, a distraction from it, blame somebody else, uh, is usually what we tend to do. So, in this sense of understanding, is to awaken to suffering. So it's changing from a from an ordinary reactive human being condition to react when there's pain or suffering or discontentment or unhappiness. We we run away from it or distract ourselves. Instead of doing that, even if somebody is persecuting us, the noble truth is is to is the noble the nobility of understanding suffering is by observing, awakening to this feeling of dissatisfaction, of anger, resentment, worry, anxiety, whatever. <clears throat> intensity or degree you might be experiencing it. So the, the tendency is to, is a, in the Thai force tradition, they say, look here at the mind itself. So like the Kubajans in Northeast Thailand are always pointing to, to this part. They take their hand and point here. So in <clears throat> this direction, we're, we're not sending our our interest outward, seeking distraction or blaming others, but understanding, accepting this feeling of worry, anxiety, uh, resentment, anger, greed, 
uh, ambition, are all forms of suffering. Wanting something you don't have yet is dukkha. Not wanting things to be the way they are is dukkha. The physical body is a, is a, is a form of dukkha. It's a sensitive form. So it's, there's no way can we, can we seek stability and permanent happiness through the, the physicality of our own, <clears throat> our own body. The Buddha pointed to old age, sickness, death. Right now, I'm my teacher, parent is old age and sickness, and then the in, the imminent death that awaits this form is seen in terms of of dhamma, of teaching, rather than as something to dismiss, avoid, uh, try to prolong your life as long as possible, uh, or ignore it, is it's learning to accept old ages like this. So like this year, I'll be 83 years old in July. That's really old, you know, there's no way I can convince myself that I'm not old, or this body. And it's certainly, you know, when you, when you reach 80, definitely the deterioration is more obvious. The suffering would be if I didn't want to be old. I didn't want sickness or this decrepit form to be the way it is. I wanted to be young and healthy and good-looking again and, and vigorous. That would be the suffering, the dukkha of the first noble truth. But the aging process is not dukkha. It is it's the natural process of that which was born. And it's, it is dukkha in the sense of dhamma. It's, it is a sankara. His very nature is change, is a nicha dukkhanata. So this is a way of reflecting, of observing, like the Four Noble Truths are <clears throat> to be observed, to be seen as relating to, to your own body and your own personality, your own emotional habits, the life you live, the, the, the experiences you have. Now, it would be a, a dreary philosophy if it was that everything's dukkha, but, but, and so sometimes Buddhism is mis, misunderstood and interpreted as, as a very pessimistic uh, philosophy of life, a kind of humanism that just says every, it's all dukkha, so, uh, you know, let go of it. But it, it's not meant to be that way on the terms of of logical reason it's to understand so how do we understand and that's where this sati sampachanya or mindfulness clear comprehension operate that is the way that each one of us has to deal with suffering, with the with this realm, with the physical bodies we have to live in for a lifetime, with our emotional habits, our 
loves and hates, likes and dislikes, our experience through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, through thinking, through memory, all these conditions, their very nature is impermanent. And that which isn't impermanent is our ability to be aware of them. Like one condition can't, can't be aware of another condition. Like I can't, as a personality, be aware of dukkha. If I start operating as my dukkha, my suffering, then that's, I'm creating a person that's suffering. So the personality is, is impermanent, and because it's conditioned, it has no soul, no, no uh, heart to it. The personality is a habit pattern we've developed uh, through life, through the early period of our life, and yet we operate from personal from attachment to the sense of I am this body, I am this person. So the Buddha <coughs> said, this is not, this is not reality. This is, this is just the, the accumulation of, of, uh, identity through ignorance with the physical body. Because it seems to be me. We're told, you know, my mother, told me I'm this, this, this body. And the society I grew up in treated me always as if I was this form, this, this body. So this is a kind of conditioning that takes place once you're born. Once a baby's born, it's conditioned by the mother, father, the family, the society that it's born into. So just by taking this ordinary experience of dukkha or suffering, what do we do with it? We understand it. We begin to accept it, observe it. And when you start changing your attitude towards dukkha, instead of just reacting with aversion or blame, it takes a kind of patience to allow the a condition that is unpleasant, unwanted, uh, to exist, to be what it is in the present moment. So it's in this sense of here and now, Pachubhananamma, that we understand suffering by allowing it to exist. And contemplating it, and we begin to see the, the absence of suffering, because suffering is impermanent. So this is the, the gate to the deathless, this sati-sampachanya mindfulness, which is a, a very popular word these days. Uh, <clears throat> you hear about mindfulness practices all the time. And uh, it's, I mean, I th some people think it's, uh, are critical of this, but I think it's rather a good sign because, say, when I first came to England 40 years ago, 
And, you know, psychotherapists or people never talked about mindfulness. They talked about transforming your personality through positive thinking or through analysis or whatever, but not through mindfulness. Now, mindfulness, when I, when I began this reflection, You know, I used the the, the Aparuta de Sangamatasataura, the the gate to the deathless is the door to the deathless is open. And I always liked this quote. <clears throat> For years, even when I was a Samanera, I remember re- reading it in in a in a Dhamma book. Because it, it gave me great hope, even as a person, you know. The gate, the door to the deathless. What is that door to the deathless? What is the deathless? And from there, you know, this is like inquiry, investigation, dhamma-vijaya. You, you start asking yourself questions. What does that mean? You know, it's a nice thing to say, but is it... Is it, what did the Buddha actually mean when he said "aparuta ne sangamatasatawara"? The door to the deathless is open. And then, through bhavana, through meditation, it became apparent that's what mindfulness is all about. That's the the door. That's the entrance to the deathless. So, what is the deathless then? What is, when when I when there's mindfulness, what happens? Now it's not mindfulness of an object like we are mindful like of objects uh, when we cross the street. Usually, when we're small children, our mothers tell us to be mindful crossing the street. Look right, then look left, and wait for the green man to shine. And we're aware when, uh, of things we're doing, of work that we're performing. So that, there's a mindfulness of an object. But Satisambhachanya isn't, the object is not a thing. It's consciousness itself. And consciousness, you can't, conceive of consciousness, you can't describe it. You can't measure it in any way. And you can't define what consciousness is. Because that's what we are, is conscious. It's this. It's just this simple reality of here and now. Consciousness is this. And what is it when I say that? And then you start thinking, well, what exactly, what do you mean? Then you start thinking. But for a moment, there's a, a, an emptiness, a kind of gap between in, in the here and now that, that we begin to notice if through mindfulness, through satisampajanya. Before we start trying to figure it out and thinking, what is Ajahn Sumedho saying? It doesn't make any sense. So it's an ability to open, to be fully present to the, to at this moment the way it is. 
So it's like listening or, you know, not for anything, not like any object, like music or somebody speaking, but just this attentiveness in the present, a kind of suspended attention. And that's when we start noticing sound of silence. When people that are trying to find the sound of silence can't find it. <laughs> but when, you're, when there's just pure awareness, that kind of stopping and a, and a relaxed attention So it's not it's not like forcing or or compelling or it's not willpower or willfulness. <clears throat> and that's the way to understand dukkha or suffering. Now we have to accept the the limitations that we feel we're under within the forms that we exist in. So so we, uh, you know, like this is what I found very uh, helpful living in uh, with Lung Po Cha in, in Ubon. Was uh, somehow I felt Ajahn Chah had accepted the reality of existence within the limited form of his own body, and it wasn't he wasn't trying to get out of it or seek a, a, a way out of the physical form. He wasn't an intellectual just thinking and theorizing about Buddhism. He actually was someone who'd taken the Buddha's teaching and made it work for him. So it was something that was that he'd actually understood in a, in a profound way rather than just through the the thinking mind or through reading the scriptures so bhattabhata is the is the pali word for practice put it into practice like the first noble truth there is suffering the practice the second aspect is it should be understood that's telling you what to do with it. It's not just saying uh, there's suffering. It's telling you how to deal with suffering. And so in the early years, the first year living in, in uh, Wapapong, you know, I couldn't understand the, the, the language. It took me a while to get any kind of... Uh, affluent uh, sense of understanding his formal days in us, but <clears throat> the, so much of the teaching, the directness of Ajahn Chah was pointing, making you look at yourself. So during the early years, before I could understand the actual teaching he was giving in a formal way every day, uh, there was this pointing. It would get me to look at my, what I'm actually feeling. He wasn't telling me what I should feel or telling me what a bhikkhu should be, but encouraging me to observe what I'm actually 
what I'm actually experiencing in the present moment is like this. And of course, when you find yourself in a situation, you know, coming from the Western world and going to a very strict Vinaya monastery in, in a remote part of Thailand, you're kind of throwing yourself into something, you, you know, it's quite uh, bewildering. You don't understand the culture, you, everything is new and different. The thing that, that I had faith in was in the teaching of the Buddha. That kept me there. Interest. The, the faith I had was really like an interest, a kind of unintellectualized faith. It wasn't justified. Somehow it just, when I first encountered uh, Buddha's teaching when I was 21 years old, I, something in me just related to that immediately, spontaneously which I can't define or describe, it just happened that way. But what I could do during that first year, during the frustrations and annoyances and resistance uh, that I experienced was observe it. And, and Lung Po Cha's basic teaching to me in the first year was developing patience patient endurance, which was absolutely necessary to survive. And Americans, we, we are not noted for our patient endurance. You know, we, we like the instant results, the computers and the iPads that we have now, you know, you get frustrated if you have to wait too long to access the screen. But in life in, in Wapapong in those days was, a, was an exercise in patience. Because you had to wait. You had to, to, it was so organized, so disciplined that you couldn't just do everything your own way or follow your own uh, impulses. You had to wait. And that waiting could be very painful if you didn't observe it. So seeing the opportunity in monastic life, the kind of tedium of monastic forms and the ceremonial side <clears throat> can be used skillfully to, to cultivate patience, kantibharami. So even in the first year, I people said, you must. I look back now, that was like 50 years ago. Doesn't seem that long. 50 years ago. And I think of that first year, I can't remember the, I don't have vivid remembers of, memories of suffering. I just realized there was a transformative year, you know, so I, I think of that first year as a kind of blessing. I don't, I don't actually remember uh, the frustration and, and suffering that I experienced that year. It doesn't come forth in a strong memory, because I actually felt I was leading a good life and, and uh, developing the practice that I longed to, to develop.
consciousness itself is is a subject that people are really interested in. Scientists, psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, because it is you know, it is a mystery in a way. From the personal level, the personal level, the, the cultural condition level of our, uh, of our life, you know, me as a personality, as an individual, trying to figure out consciousness. Can you figure it out? Can you define it? And you, you know, I remember one time going to the library, to the Pali Dictionary, to find out what the Pali Dictionary, their definition of consciousness. I had been studying psychology, what Freud said about consciousness, what Jung said about consciousness, what Devendanta said about consciousness. And suddenly I had this insight, what am I doing? This is it, I'm conscious. I wonder why I need some, somebody else's definition of it. So that was like an awakening moment, an insight. It wasn't, <clears throat> you know, from the personality uh, of Ajahn Sumedho was wanting somebody else's definition of consciousness. What would, what would Lung Po Cha say? What did he say consciousness is? Or the Sangha Raj of Thailand, or, you know, I want somebody to tell me, Ajahn Mahabhura, what does he say, or Puttadasa Bhikkhu, what do they say about consciousness? And suddenly you realize that you know, consciousness itself, and, and no matter what they say, that's not consciousness. <laughs> it's words, definition. So this is what I mean by intuitive awareness or mindfulness. It's no, no longer looking for definitions, uh, scriptural approval or guidance from outside, but learning to, to awaken yourself to the reality of here and now. So consciousness, we experience consciousness through the senses. <clears throat> so we have eye, we experience consciousness through seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. It's all conscious through consciousness operating through the senses. But the Gate to the deathless, the door to the deathless isn't about seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, or thinking, or feeling. So you can't conceive it. You can't imagine it. Because thinking and imagination are sankars themselves. They can take you so far and then you have to stop thinking. Like thinking is a, you know, is 
is very uh, what we relate to so much. We're educated. We go to school and the universities, and we're we're thinking form thinking mammals. We have retentive memories. We have language to think. So, so we tend to want to define ourselves with thoughts, with with adjectives, with qualities. We identify with the physical form, you know, with its appearance, whether it's male or female, whether it's black or white, whether it's uh, you know you you get a sense of your self worth through whether your mother uh, adores you or doesn't like you. You 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 pick up you absorb the all the illusions and deceits that are part of uh, being born and growing up in a deluded society. So we have the sakyaditi as a is called a fetter. This sense of of unquestioned identity with the physical body that, that we have. Because it does seem to be me. You know, and when you think about it, I'm, what am I then? I'm, the, I'm sitting here, I have a name, I have a form, I you know, have a history. I have a whole set of habits and 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 uh, memories, perceptions that influence consciousness experience. We develop the, the thinking ability, the logic and reason. We develop the, the discriminatory ability to discriminate one thing from another. And this is good, this is bad, this is right, this is wrong, this is big, small. This is dealing with all sankaras, isn't it? Sankaras have qualities. They can be good, they can be bad. They can be big, they can be small. And so our identity, the personality, is based on attachment to, to these uh, views. I am this body. But with Sati Sampachanya, that sense of I am, before you think it, there's still conscious awareness. It's kind of an empty pause before the, the pronoun I arises. So you're aware of that. And you begin to ex investigate this, the thinking process. I am this body. And you begin to, to lose your confidence in just resolving, trying to find answers or solutions through the thinking process, through logic and reason, because you realize and in terms of worldly values, it works adequately. And in terms of reality itself, Dhamma, words are just empty phenomena. 
I is just a, you know, there's in different languages it's expressed differently. And then I am this body. I am is a reasonable statement of, of presence. You know, it's, it's fair enough when you when you observe it. I am is a kind of acknowledgement of of present awareness. But when it becomes I am this body, then it becomes more than that, isn't it? This this body be, is is me. It's mine. And then we develop a whole set of conditioning factors that that increase that identity with your size, your shape, your gender, your abilities, the lack of abilities, your appearance. But in mindfulness, Satisampatanya, there's the body. We can be aware of the body as an object in consciousness. Now, in the West, we we tend to see consciousness as in the in the brain. We tend to identify consciousnesses within the body. That's the attitude of, that seems to be prevalent at this time which I, I think is changing. The Buddhist approach isn't that the consciousness in the body, the body's in consciousness. Now just try to use your, you know, use your mind to experiment with this. If, if, conscious, if the body's in consciousness, you can be aware of your body sitting as a whole form sitting, standing, walking, lying down. You, there's awareness of it through observing the sensations from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet. Is that your brain observing that? You know, is that some kind of internal organ that, <clears throat> that can observe the soles of your feet? Or... <laughs> Is that consciousness? And does consciousness belong to anybody? If it, if the body's in consciousness, then we're all in consciousness at this moment. Every, this whole, everything is in consciousness. Consciousness has no boundary. So, in terms of consciousness, there's a unity, a oneness with everything. Where in in terms of sankara, then we're all separate. You know, I'm here, you're there, and I have a name and history, and you have your own personality and, and identities. They're all different. Even though, like, the samanas, we try to dress the same, wear the same kind of robes, shave the head, we still experience that, even though on one appearance we... we diminish the sense of individuality or ex exaggerating personal traits, but still there's, there's the natural differences that exist on the personal level. But unconsciousness, just think of uh, what is unity or oneness 
And I'm just suggesting this. I'm not, this is not a Ajahn Sumedho doctrine. <laughs> it's just a suggestion for reflection. Has no boundary. All the same. And what, what is it? Consciousness, when you, when it can be aware of itself, it doesn't need to be described by a sankara. And that's why when, when we talk about satisampachanya, mindfulness, it's it. We awaken. We suddenly observe the reality of now rather than defining it or judging it, criticizing it, or questioning it. It's like this. So this is the, the gate to the deathless. And it is, you know, when you, I've had this, this pansa, this vasa, this year will be my 51st, 51 years, and I had a year as a samanera before that. So, you know, I've taken mainly the teaching of the Dhammajaka Pawatana Sutta as my guideline for these past 50 years. Just test it out. Does it, you know, what... At first I was interested in it, and I had kind of faith in the Buddha's teaching and the scriptural Buddha, and I... Uh, wanted to find out how to meditate. That's why I went to Thailand to find some teacher because I couldn't teach myself. I tried when I was in Berkeley at university. I tried teaching myself Zen meditation. I couldn't last five minutes. Didn't know what to do with my mind. Or... So I realized I needed, you know, I needed guidance, somebody who, who knew what to do. And that was why I went to Thailand, was to, to look for, find somebody who would train me. But it is, you know, for, this is an ancient teaching too, it's not modern psychology or new age ideas. You know, this is, this is, that's why it's an ageless teaching. It's a kalika. It's it's not bound by time. Because suffering is is very much the same. Whether it was Gautama the Buddha in India two thousand five hundred years ago, or Ajahn Sumedho in the present moment. The suffering is is very much this, the the same reality. Whether you're, you know, we think in materialistic terms, if we have lots of money and everything we want, we will be happy. But we meet people who have everything they want; they're not particularly happy. Why? Because dukkha is a noble truth to be understood. And and you can't just ignore it and get rid of it. And through through accumulating the best of the sankharas, the conditions, 
it'll pursue you in a in you know in a in your dream home and best relationships. Suffering is like this. So this is a retreat is opportunity to to uh, reflect in this way. When this the Buddha's teaching is a reflective teaching. It's it's not telling you what to do or what to think. It's it's encouraging you. Just by pointing suffering as a noble truth. You change from if once you begin to investigate that, rather than just try to you know think about whether you agree with it or not, you can be aware of this sense of loneliness or self-consciousness. It can be just on this level, timidity, shyness, uh, feelings of resentment in life. In our experience of life, isn't it? In every, whether you're from a democratic system or a totalitarian political system, whether you've been had opportunities uh, or have had no opportunities, we still experience self-consciousness, worry, anxiety. And you can see it in in country like this here in in the UK, affluent, uh, developed country, stable government, good economy. And, and you know you can still find worry about the economy and the government if you want, but but uh, that's dukkha to observe. That stable economies and and affluent is is still not the answer to to the first noble truth. So this relationship of consciousness, sati-sampatanya, aware, gate to the deathless, and then you investigate. The physical body is like this, you know, so you're, you're not criticizing the physical body or you know, contemplating in terms of whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, it is like this. Sitting is like this. And when you say to yourself, sitting is like this, it stops the the thinking mind for a while. Because you, you have to hesitate and observe just the, the experience, the reality of sitting, as you're sitting right now, is like this. And it's a, this is reflection. It's not discrimination. Not about how well you sit, or if you, you're good at it or not, or whether 
you can sit on chairs or some people get very fixed ideas about meditation that you have to sit in full lotus to really be enlightened. <clears throat> That's another sankara we create. But the, the simplicity of, of just observing, it's like this. What does that do when you, when you do that? When you notice just the reality of sitting. or standing, walking, lying down, the four postures, or breathing. These are all happening here and now, in the present moment, Pachubana Dhamma. They're, they're not, you know, it's not something remote. But it's, it's your body's breathing, it's feeling the pressure of sitting, is like this. The body is a sense organ, so it's going to feel is it comfort or discomfort. Neutral sensation is like this. This is reflecting on the way it is, just on the reality that, that you're awakened to at this very moment. So over the <clears throat> past 50 years, i uh, had every opportunity to, to put this to the test. I spent 43 pansas in, uh, is it 43 or 33? in UK, from 1977. So coming from, from you know, from uh, 10 years in Thailand, <clears throat> training in, with Lung Po Cha, where you have, you're in a Buddhist country where everybody, you know, most, you know, 90, 5% of Thai people identify as Theravadan Buddhists. So it's part of a culture, part of a way of life. So Vinaya and all that is just, one can take a lot for granted living in Thailand as a monk. Coming to, to live in a non-Buddhist country, like England, was like, you know, the future is the unknown. <clears throat> in Thailand, there's a lot you just take for granted. The keeping the Vinaya is, is more or less the way you live, and people admire that and accept it. But how are you going to live in... We lived in London the first two years. How are you going to live in London on alms food? I don't know any Buddhists, you know, so these are questions, you know, going into the unknown is like this. 
So there are no guarantees, but this this ability to to awaken to to what you're actually feeling. I didn't have to have guarantors in England. I wanted them on a personal level. I wanted to make sure that I had, you know, people who would put arms food in my bowl every day. <laughs> personal, the personal side. And then the doubt would begin, what if, what if, you know, what if you, nobody cares, you starve to death? Then you imagine the worst possible scenario to, to worry about, or to awaken to that, to doubt, to, to anxiety, to, to want certitude when there's uncertainty. Is like this. And if you keep pursuing this, you know, you're actually, you, you know, you actually begin to, to trust this awareness more than your, your own thoughts or fears or worries that, that come from your conditioned personality and your cultural, uh, cultural conditioning. So this evening, that's enough for now. Very nice to see so many monks coming from afar. See the Siladaras again. Ajahn Emerald seems to be doing very well. And he's made a very nice kuti for me to live in. And this, you know, this is the result of the practice of the bhati-bhata, not of a plan. You know, like people oftentimes say that, you know, you've done so much and you've, you know, they give me credit for everything here. And, uh, but personally, you know, uh, wisely I reflect, it, my personality didn't do this. <laughs> it was through the faith, through the surrender to Buddha Dhamma Sangha that allows things like this to happen. It's not a, a personal level. I, you know, I had to develop uh, the path while while living in this country. And from t just ten years in a in a Buddhist country to to it was actually thirty four pansas actually I remember now <laughs> and, and the <laughs> and the developments in this country just trusting in that uh, sati the awareness and and it didn't mean I didn't worry or or get confused or uh, during <laughs> these 34 years in England, but it was, was all crisp for the mill. It was all developing awareness around the state of mind, the emotion, the, 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 the praise that I received or the criticism. 
seeing it in terms of trusting in this awareness of it. And through that, through that kind of practice, then you have insight. And the second noble truth is about letting go. Letting go of sankaras. You have to know what attachment is before you can let go of what you're attached to. The idea of letting go is a good idea. We're all for it. But you have to really observe attachment and the results of being attached. So in monastic life, you can get really attached to your own views or monasteries or teachers or so forth. And you, you, you've, it's, that's part of the, the human condition. But with satisampachanya, you, you begin to investigate. Attachment is like this. Attachment through ignorance, through avicca, is like this. It's dukkha. It's suffering to be attached to, to one's own views, to one's opinions, to one's ideals, to other people, to places or things. If you, if you investigate and observe the, what attachment is, then the, the second noble truth is let go. So as letting go is the insight into the second noble truth through wisdom, through understanding Dhamma. So I'll close here for this evening. Angmayam dhammagata sadhukarang dadama se sadhu 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 ah